This message comes from NPR sponsor Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in Little Wing, the new original movie starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Rated PG 13. Stream it now exclusively on Paramount Plus. Try it free at ParamountPlus.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. Today we remember Robert Gottlieb, perhaps the most acclaimed editor of his time. He died last week at the age of 92. His first real job was at the publishing house Simon & Schuster in 1955. From there, he became the editor-in-chief of the literary publishing house Alfred A. Knopf. Gottlieb edited scores of books, including fiction, history, biography, and memoir by such authors as Joseph Heller, Doris Lessing, Toni Morrison, John Cheever, John Le Carre, Catherine Graham, Bill Clinton, Nora Ephron, and Michael Crichton. He left Knopf to become the editor of The New Yorker in 1987, taking over from William Shawn. One of the remarkable parts of his career is his more than 50 years as Robert Caro's editor. Caro wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning bestseller The Power Broker, an exhaustive investigation into how Robert Moses reshaped New York City and how he used and abused power. The use and abuse of power is also at the heart of Caro's biographies of Lyndon Johnson. Caro is still writing the fifth and final volume, and Gottlieb was waiting to edit it. Terry Gross spoke to Robert Gottlieb about his life and his often contentious collaboration with Caro last December when their relationship was portrayed in a documentary called Turn Every Page, directed by his daughter, Lizzie Gottlieb. Robert Gottlieb, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Um, so Robert Caro's books are about the use and abuse of political power, how powerful people affect the lives of other people for better or worse. Um, what was the power dynamic like in your relationship? Since he writes so much about power, what is that power dynamic like? Well, I don't really believe there is a power dynamic between an author and an editor when the relationship is wholesome. Both have to be strong, have strong opinions, and feel free and safe in expressing them in as polite a way as possible. We had disagreements along the way, certainly, and we could both get excited about them or buy them. But on the whole, for 50 years of work, it's been productive, to my mind, pleasant, except when it wasn't. And it's gotten better and better. And in fact, our relationship has gotten better and better through the years. So I can say today, which I could not have said 50 years ago, that we are friends. You say that you knew after 15 pages that this book was a masterpiece. How did you know the book is over a 1,000 pages? Well, that's what makes you an editor, (laughs) a good one. You respond to what you're reading. If you're stunned by it, excited by it, amused by it, thrilled by it, then you assume that you're not alone, that if you like it, others would like it. You know, I mean, an editor is is a reader who edits. And I trust my reading because it's what I've spent my life doing. I think of myself as an editor and a New Yorker. And the power broker uh, challenged me on both scores. It was a wonderful experience and an exhausting experience. It took me one year to finish my editing of, of the power broker, not because there was so much that had to be done for editorial reasons, as because we simply couldn't fit more than we did into a single volume because we couldn't print and bind a book that would accept them all physically. And 
there was no way that I could publish two volumes about Robert Moses. I remember saying to Bob, you know, maybe we can interest readers in one book about Robert Moses, but there's no way I can interest them in two. So we cut. I, we finally decided, after years of discussing it in an amicable way, that we cut 350,000 words out of the original manuscript. It must be really hard to tell somebody like Robert Caro, who works so much on every detail, that you know passages or chapters or whole larger sections of the book have to come out because of length. When when Caro spent like so much time working on those passages, what are the typical things that you thought about? Well, it could be anything. It could be punctuation. It could be uh, overusage of a given word. It could be repetitions, because Bob and I, it's not that we disagreed, we, we saw things differently. I, who was reading it and editing it, would see that he would think, feel, I would feel that he had made this point perhaps 20 pages earlier, and he didn't really need to make it again in somewhat different language. He felt he was aware of that, and but he felt that it was so important that it needed to be stressed through repetition. So he was thinking as a writer, and I was thinking as a reader. That's the way it should be. You had to work on like the macro and the micro of um, That's it. of the power broker. Because on one hand, you're trying to cut like this huge number of pages. I don't know exactly how, how many, but at the same time, you were you know dealing with like commas and semicolons and sometimes had having pretty heated disagreements as far as I can tell over whether some you know whether there should be a comma or a semicolon yes sometimes because not everyone sees punctuation the same way uh, so I feel as an editor it's my job to make the case that I need to make and then it's his job to eventually agree or disagree you know, I never cease explaining or telling young people who want to be editors. It's a service job. Our job is to serve the words, serve the author, serve the text. It's not our book. It's not my book. It's his book or her book. But it's a very gratifying job. And I love the editing process. I love it as an editor. And since I've done a lot of writing myself, to my astonishment, I love being edited because it's the process that I like. I don't care whether I'm the editor or the editee. It's fun and it's interesting to see how you can make something that you believe is good even better. You know, we, we were talking a little bit about the dynamics of power. What, one of the many books that you edited was Bill Clinton's memoir. Um, and when you were working with him, and you recount this, I think, in your memoir. Um, like he said, we're going to have a good time working together. Ask anyone here. You'll find that I'm good to work for. And you corrected him and said, in this relationship, you're working for me. Well, it wasn't quite that brutal. But it was, first of all, it was in a room filled with people all his assistants and secretaries and who knows who else. And there was little me. So what he said was, I think he said something like, ask any of these people who work for me, 
you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear, I'm sure, that I'm very good to work for. Some words like that. And I said, actually, uh, Bill, in this instance, I'm not working for you. You're working for me. And there was a kind of, if you can have a silent gasp, there was a <laughs> silent gasp around the room. And he sailed right past it. We never had a moment's difficulty. At one point, I wrote in the galleys of the book, which we were working on, they'd go back and forth between us. Um, I wrote, this is the single most boring page I have ever read. <laughs> and when he wrote back, when he sent the galleys back, he wrote next to that, no, page 632 <laughs> is even more boring. So you can see what our relationship was. It was really a wonderful, friendly, happy business from start to finish. You made a point of calling him Bill as opposed to Mr. President. He was no longer president, but it's kind of customary to say Mr. President. Yeah, well, not if you're saying, you can't say, I'm sorry, but we need a comma here, Mr. President. I could not imagine my saying something like that. Why not? Well, it was just too, it was too formal. It's a very complicated personal relationship. And uh, there was no way I could do it. And he didn't want it. He didn't need that kind of ego reinforcement. Your memoir is called Avid Reader, and you became an avid reader as a child. When did you realize there was such a thing as an editor? I didn't think about editing at all when I was reading as a child. I didn't think about it, of course, when I was reading as a child. But once I got a job, it was not easy for me to get a job because I was this scruffy guy, a quintessence of nerdiness before we knew that there were such things as nerds who had been overeducated, both at uh, Columbia <clears throat> College, Columbia University, and then at Cambridge in England. But I didn't seem very practical. I was very, very young looking. I always said I was, you know, I was a, I was a father at 21, and I looked 17, and I wandered around looking for a job. All I really wanted to do was read. And finally, through a chain of circumstances that could not have been predicted, I ended up at Simon & Schuster, which was then a rather small and very isolated publishing house. It was seen as very crass and commercial by the snobbish world of, uh, of publishing although it had published already many very distinguished books. So I was there for 12 and a half years. I like to say I went in as a cabin boy and at the end was sort of an admiral. But it was very encouraging. People were thrilled to have inquisitive, nosy, brash people around. So I was welcomed rather than disdained. Since you looked so young, when you first started to edit authors, did they look at you like, who is this kid and how is he going to help me? Well, I know Joseph Heller, when we first met, when I took an option on the book that became Catch-22, which was originally called Catch-18, uh, he told me later he was in his mid-30s. He'd been in the Army in the war, in the Air Force during the war. He, was, he had taught and he had a very responsible job in uh, marketing in the magazine world and upturned this kid to his eyes. And I, he was not the only one. 
I know several other people when I came out to greet them at the desk when they first called on me at, at our offices thought I was uh, an assistant. They didn't realize that I was who I was, whatever that was. So, you know, you mentioned um, Catch-22, which is a kind of dark, humorous book about World War II. And um, it was originally called Catch-18, but the war novel Mila 18 you found out was going to be published, so you couldn't use 18 in the title. And you're the one who came up with 22. Catch-22 entered the vocabulary. Uh, Describe what Catch-22 means and then tell me how it felt to have a title that you contributed to become an expression outside of the book. Well, it's gratifying, of course, but, you know, I've stopped thinking about that years and years ago. It's so embedded in the language now that I don't feel any connection to it. When that happens, when a word comes into existence like that, that becomes used and used and used, there's always a reason, and the reason is always that we need that word. Another word that comes out of literature that that happened to was Kafkaesque. You know, Kafkaesque expresses something for people that there was no word for before Kafka. As I remember from the book, which I read um, many many years ago, Catch-22 was um, a kind of absurd catch where you couldn't win, like there was no good option. Yeah. Well, you know, I was very nervous about it because it was such a huge success, and we had publicized it in so uh, extraordinary a way that it was really what made me into a known quantity in the publishing world. And I stayed away from the book. I was always afraid that if I reread it, I wouldn't love it as much as I had loved it. And when its 50th anniversary came around, and there were being very various celebrations and acknowledgments and events surrounding that, I thought, I better read it again because I want to see what I feel about it now, in case I'm asked. So I did read it again for the first time in 50 years, and I was unbelievably relieved and and excited by loving it all over again. And I was sort of amused when I came upon a passage that I didn't quite like, and then remembered that I had really not liked it 50 years before, and by then the editing process was over and it was too late to do anything about it. So, as I say, I may not be talented, but I am consistent. I don't know if you've worked with any writers who are not friendly or not pleasant or they're maybe not great people in general, but you love their writing and, you know, reconciling those two things, like the person and their art. Well, I can't think of many cases of writers I've worked with whose work I really loved and whose person I didn't like at all. Just There are people who are more difficult than other people and more needy. You know, it's a very emotional relationship. There's a transference that occurs, as in psychoanalysis. The, the editor represents many things and different things to every writer. It's a financial relationship, it's an approval relationship, it's a technical relationship. It can be a close one or it cannot. Some writers don't want to be social with their editors. Others need to talk to them constantly. And if you would let them, would like to read to you what they've written that day over the telephone. Not for me. 
Uh, so your job being a service job is to supply the writer with whatever you intuit um, he or she requires and needs and can make the most of. Would you describe the publishing world when you started um, over 60 years ago uh, c- compared to how it is now? Well, it seems to me that it's become much more corporate and more about product than about books. But I think probably everybody feels that who's been around for a long time. It was always better in the good old days. I know Mr. Knopf, who founded Alfred Knopf in, I believe, 1915, would say when I got to know him somewhat, uh, he would say, this is the age of the slobs. You should have been around 40 years ago. I think books used to mean more to American culture than they do now. So many people don't read books anymore. Um, are you feeling that as, as an editor and former publisher? I don't feel that at all. I think millions and millions of people are readers, and they need to read, and they want to read, and they do read. Of course, there are probably many more millions of people who don't, but that has always been true. I feel there's a tremendous interest in books these days, and they are celebrated, and they're thought about, and they're talked about, and they're read. You you are so occupied with so many different projects and have been you know ever since you became an adult and I'll, I'll mention I'll, I'll mention again um, you work with you know the New York City Ballet and the Miami City Ballet you're you know editing and publishing you're collecting you love dance and theater um, jazz jazz music and other music as well um, how do you think obsession has worked for you and perhaps against you? I don't think it's worked against me at all, unless it's just irritated some people. That I'm not aware of and can do nothing about. You know, going all the way is something I like to do. I mean, I do it naturally. If, if I read one book by somebody and like it, I want to read all 18 of that person's books. I just am a completist, I guess. Editor Robert Gottlieb, who died last week at the age of 92. Terry spoke to him last December when the documentary called Turn Every Page, directed by his daughter Lizzie Gottlieb, was released. Coming up, we'll hear an earlier interview with Gottlieb about his love of music and the book he co-wrote collecting a thousand great lyrics from shows, movies, and popular song. Here's one of the songs highlighted in that book, sung by Rosemary Clooney. It's called Everything Happens to Me. This is Fresh Air. I make a date for golf And you can bet your life it rains I try to give a party And the guy upstairs complains I guess I'll go through life Just catching colds And missing trains Everything happens to me I never miss a thing I've had the measles And the mumps Every time I play an ace My partner always trumps I guess I'm just a fool Who never looks Before she jumps Everything happens to me 
At first my heart thought you could break this jinx for me That love would turn the trick to end despair But now I just can't fool this head that thinks for me I've mortgaged all my castles in the air I've telegraphed and phoned I sent an airmail special to Your answer was goodbye And there was even postage due I fell in love just once And then it had to be with you Everything happens to me. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts. We're listening to interviews with editor Robert Gottlieb, who died last week at the age of 92. Over a nearly 70-year career, he edited the work of many of the greatest writers of his generation. He was the editor-in-chief at Simon & Schuster and went on to play the same role at the literary publishing house Alfred A. Knopp and at The New Yorker. Gottlieb had wide interests, and among them was his love of jazz, lyrics, and the American songbook. In 2000, Terry Gross talked to him and musical theater expert Robert Kimball about their book, Reading Lyrics. The book was a collection of lyrics by some of the most important lyricists of the last century, including George M. Cohan, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Ira Gershwin, Lorenz Hart, Dorothy Field, Frank Lesser, Johnny Mercer, and others. Here's a song that Kimball and Gottlieb agree was one of the greatest lyrics. It was written in 1937 by lyricist Ira Gershwin with music by his brother George. Here's Tony Bennett with Diana Krall on piano. It's very clear Our love is here to stay Not for a year But ever and a day The radio And the telephone And the movies That we know May just be passing fancies And in time may go But oh my dear 
Our love is here to stay Together we're Going a long, long way In time the Rockies may crumble Gibraltar may tumble They're only made of clay But Our love is here To stay It's Very clear Our love is here To stay Robert Kimball, Robert Gottlieb, welcome to Fresh Thank Air. Thank you, Terry. The song that we just heard, um, the Gershwins, Our Love is Here to Stay, where does that fit in, Robert Kimball, in your uh, world of lyrics? The last song George Gershwin wrote, and maybe one of the greatest last songs written by any composer, and Ira finished the, the song after George died. George had only written the refrain. And Robert Gottlieb, um, in, in terms of the writing and the rhymes, what do you find really special about that song? Well, you know, one of the things that's said about Ira Gershwin is that his rhyming is very complicated and maybe over-clever. And here in this song is the proof that that was not necessarily or often so. We just go right to the beginning of the refrain in that it's very clear our love is here to stay. The way that in the middle of the line, that catches. And again, and in time may go, but oh my dear. And you hear that echo, but it's not a bang rhyme at the end of a line. It's just in there. And then it's all so simple. And then you get that wonderful image at the end of the Rockies and Gibraltar, which is the only fancy moment, and then it's gone. I just think it's a perfect lyric. Now, I know that choosing pop songs is not an empirical process where you could actually measure what is the better song. So did you have criteria other than what really struck you uh, for, for, for inclusion well, in the book? One criteria certainly is that songs that have endured, I mean, songs have a way of, of living and how they live is a fascinating process. Sometimes they, they, are, they burn brightly in a way and then they then they somehow pass from view for a time and come back so there are many different avenues you have to explore to make this all come together so i think that the the fact that we were open and that we knew we were going to go through a very long process of learning listening thinking reflecting shaping was all part of it but finally i think we felt that those songs that we were going to include were songs that could be sung today by cabaret singers or whoever. In other words, that they had uh, a viable life in the now. They weren't just historical curiosities. And that applies to some of the very earliest songs, which maybe at this moment no one is singing, but they are songs we thought could be sung now. Um, Robert Gottlieb, you've edited, uh, published many books of That's poetry. Sure. I mean, you're the former editor-in-chief at, at Knopf. Yeah. And um, your publishing company put out many, many books of poetry. And still does. It still does. And I'm sure you've read much poetry over the years. How do you think of lyrics as compared? How do you judge lyrics differently than you judge poetry? Well, it's very, very complicated because a lyric is half of a work of art. 
or half of a non-work of art, depending on what the song is. And you can read it and speak it separately, and yet you know that something is not there that is intrinsic to it, whereas a poem obviously stands by itself. And you're very affected when you read a lyric by whether you know the tune or not. It's a completely different reading experience, and that's why it's so hard to judge these things because there are certain songs we all know that we were born knowing them, and how do you forget the music to Night and Day? You can't. You can't read Night and Day, You Are the One, without hearing Cole Porter. Robert Gottlieb and Robert Kimball talking to Terry Gross in 2000 about their book Reading Lyrics, a collection of a thousand great lyrics from shows, movies, and popular song. More after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Viking Books, publisher of Get the Picture by Bianca Bosker. In Get the Picture, the New York Times bestselling author of Cork Dork now takes readers on a journey inside the secretive world of art. The Washington Post calls it brilliant, and Time Magazine says it's a gripping and often hilarious investigation into the art world. Bosker goes full Tom Wolf. Read Get the Picture, available now. We're remembering Robert Gottlieb, the legendary editor who died last week at the age of 92. We're listening back to an interview from 2000 with Gottlieb and music theater expert Robert Kemble. Terry Gross spoke to them about their book called Reading Lyrics, a collection of the lyrics from shows, movies, and popular song from some of the most important lyricists of the last century. I'm interested in the music that you grew up with. Uh, what, was the, what was the music that you first became aware of? and that first got you interested in music. Robert Gottlieb? The first song I remember focusing on, for what will be obvious reasons, is coming home from summer camp one year, I must have been nine or ten, and the kids in my class were singing something called Mersey Dotes, and Ozy Dotes, and Little Lambsy Divey, not in our book, actually. Uh, And then I thought, what is this? And I felt very left out and behind because I had been away and I I didn't know what this was. And so I started listening to the radio. And then this was a period of songs like Blues in the Night came and Chattanooga Choo Choo. And those were songs that were my first real poinciana, Your Branches Speak to Me of Love. Uh, These are the (laughs) songs that were real to me when I was 10, 11. I remember Sentimental Journey. That's later Yes, this is a few years right. later. And that would have been the mid-40s. That was pretty early for me. But I, my experience is because my mother both played and sang with the theater. And early show experience, of course, was Annie Get Your Gone and hearing Ethel Merman perform. That was very exciting for me. And I came to know her later in life and remained a big admirer of hers all the way to the end. Did either of you have, like I grew up, 
in the 50s and 60s. And there was this huge musical gap between what I was listening to as a child and what my parents were listening to. Uh, they wanted to listen to the station that played Perry Como. I wanted to listen to the station that played Elvis Presley. And there was a real musical war going on. Was there a musical conflict when you were coming of age with your parents? No, it was quite Not the opposite. All. Not at all. We were, there was the same music yeah. that I felt. I, your, your experience, too? Yeah. For instance, my mother played the piano, and we, she loved to sing, and we used to sing a lot. We sang a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. She'd play, and I'd sing. But when Oklahoma opened in the early 40s, which is the first musical I really remember seeing, and uh, we bought all the sheet music and we sang all those songs from Oklahoma. Uh, and that was the way people really were related to music then. As it's now become almost a cliche to say it. There was a piano in every middle-class home and people played and sang together. And that's how we knew those songs. Uh, yes, there was stuff on the air, but it was nothing like the way it is today. So it instead, was, instead of having a garage band, you sat around the piano in the living room. That's right. And your mo- if, even if you had a garage band, your mother wasn't going to be part of it, I believe, in your day. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Unless your Unless mother was a very family. special lady. right? <laughs> yeah. well, radio was important. Radio and was your important. your hit parade and it was, it your was hit a parade show we was listened to. Yeah. And my parents always told me that they, they got married to I'm in the Mood for Love, which was a 1935 song. And so I always became drawn to that material because it meant something to them. So we were still connected musically. Are any of the songs that you brought with you today songs that you remember from your childhood? Hmm. It's the Lovely. Yes, I, I would say It's the Lovely. Making Whoopi. Making Whoopi would be a song that I remember. You mentioned Making Whoopi. Why don't, why don't we hear that? In fact, why don't we hear... Two versions of that, because you were talking about how these songs have such a remarkable life and how they, they're changed depending on what era it is and who's singing it. So why don't we play the Eddie Cantor version, which you brought with you, and then hear that back-to-back with the Ray Charles version. Um, did Eddie Cantor have the, the, the first hit of this? Yes, yeah, he, he was in the musical. He introduced the song. It was from a show called Whoopi in 1928 by the Walter Donaldson, the composer, and Gus Kahn, lyricist. It was a Ziegfeld show. There was a wonderful filmed version of it also with Eddie Cantor. Really, the truest view we have of Ziegfeld shows comes from that movie of Whoopi. And again, just this is a song that was written for Eddie Cantor. This is one of those situations in which songwriters wrote for a particular star and his delivery. You can see what it's like when somebody from a completely different back, not a vaudeville Ziegfeld background, but a much more contemporary R&B background, how he deals with it. Let's hear it. Another season, another reason 
Washing dishes and baby clothes. He's so ambitious. Ooh, I tell you, he's so. It's really killing. The boy's so willing to make whoopee whoopee. That's two versions of the Gus Kahn lyric, Making Whoopi. We heard Eddie Cantor, for whom the song was written, and then we heard from Ray Charles. Well, that is one of the great don't-mention-sex-but-it's-about-sex kind of lyrics. Right. <laughs> find, find a nicer word to use than sex. Robert Kimball, Robert Gottlieb, thank you both so much for talking with us about lyrics. Thank you. Thanks, thank Terry. You. Terry Gross spoke with Robert Kimball and Robert Gottlieb in 2000. Let's return to our other interview with Robert Gottlieb, recorded last December. Did you ever want your name on the cover of a book as editor? Do you wish you had more visibility over the years as the editor? Not at all. I always wanted to be unseen and unheard, which is what editors should be. That didn't work all that well for me because for whatever reason, starting with the success of Catch-22, but... For, for whatever reasons, I became, in the business, well-known. Outside the business, no, who cared? You know? No, I never wanted to be... And I would, I would uh, distress my publicity directors because people wanted interviews with me and I wouldn't do them. Because I thought editors should be unseen and unheard. Get, you know, do the work, shut up, get on, to the, get on with it. Well, I'd like to end with a song, and I was hoping, since you're deep into, um, like, jazz and pop singers, um, I was wondering if you'd like to choose a song that you're especially fond of right now, maybe something that's really endured in your your mind on your, like, top ten list, or something that you're just deep into right now that's speaking to you at the moment that would be a good song to play. Well, the song that's in my mind now is the song that ends Lizzie's film, which is Do It the Hard Way. Oh, Chet Baker, yeah. Yeah, sung a million times by Chet Baker and by Rogers and Hart. So do it the hard way, and it's easy sailing. My father believed that, and although I didn't accept everything my father believed, that stuck, or I learned it by example. So I do think that 
doing it the hard way, which is maybe the slower way, the more difficult way, is the way to do it. All right. A nice note to end on. <laughs> Let's end with the song that you suggested. This is Chet Baker, and this song also ends the movie Turn Every Page, the documentary about you and Robert Caro. Thank you so much. Listen, thanks, Terry. This was fun. Do it the hard way, and it's easy sailing. Do it the hard way, and it's hard to lose. Only the soft way has a chance of failing. You have to choose. I tried the hard way when I tried to get you. You took the soft way when you said we'll see Darling, now I'll let you Do it the hard way now that you want me Coming up, Maureen Corrigan's review of two new novels by Brandon Taylor and Andre Debuse III. This is Fresh Air. We can see not a single state. We can see not a single boat. The new podcast, Landslide. The forgotten story of how a presidential race led to today's parties and division. Winning the presidency is the most important thing. But how much do you do to win it? Landslide, part of the NPR Network. Subscribe now. This message comes from NPR sponsor Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Caitlin, a teen reeling from her parents' divorce, steals a valuable bird in order to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner that leads her to a new outlook on life. Don't miss Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus, rated PG 13. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This message comes from Schwab. When it comes to managing your wealth, Schwab gives you more choices, like full service wealth management and advice when you need it most. You can also invest on your own and trade on Thinkorswim, Schwab's powerful, award winning trading platforms. Plus, you'll get low costs, transparent pricing, and 24 7 live help. Schwab understands it's your financial journey, and they believe you should have choices in how you invest. Learn more at schwab.com. This message comes from Still Watching. True Detective is back after a five-year hiatus, and the Vanity Fair critics are ready to dive into each episode on Still Watching. New episodes of Still Watching are released on Mondays, available wherever you get your podcasts. It may be summer, but concerns about the economy and jobs are never far from the minds of many Americans. Two new novels about the struggle to find and keep a secure place in America have caught our book critic Maureen Corrigan's attention. Here's her review. Many years ago, I got an email from a woman who'd been in graduate school with me. She'd read something I'd written about that experience and wanted me to know that she, too, had felt like a working-class interloper in the halls of the Ivy League. In fact, she told me that to augment their graduate student stipends, she and her then-husband delivered newspapers before dawn every day to make ends meet. 
I thought of that classmate's hidden life all the while I was reading two powerfully disconcerting novels about making it or not in America. Brandon Taylor's The Late Americans contains a sprawling cast of mostly gay characters, many of them of color. Almost all are grad students at the University of Iowa, where Taylor himself attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Many of these characters are living double lives. They may be rich in cultural superiority, but they're unlikely to profit from that advantage. Take Noah, for instance, who's in the dance program at the university and who films homemade porn videos to support himself. His friend Ivan, a former dancer, now an MBA student, reluctantly begins making porn videos too because his future in finance lies in New York and he needs big bucks for an apartment. The novel opens on a day in the life of one of its most vivid characters, a fed-up MFA student named Seamus who's suffering through a weekly poetry workshop. Taylor, through Seamus, clearly revels in satirizing the overblown language of the seminar room. Seamus says to himself that trendy terms like witness and legacy of violence and valid make poetry seminar feel less like a rigorous intellectual and creative exercise and more like a tribunal for war crimes. Seamus supplements his meager funds by working as a cook in a nearby hospital kitchen. Hospital kitchens, he tells us, were always hiring. They were home to junkies, ex-cons, and old women, people who could never afford the hospitals where they worked. Given that he prides himself on being more a man of the people than his elite classmates, it's a punch in the gut for Seamus to overhear two co-workers complain that he swear he know everything and then teasingly call him boss man to his face. The Late Americans is a smart, sexually explicit, and cynical novel about young people striving or sometimes just surviving. But don't look for a big takeaway about the American dream in Taylor's deliberately fragmented storyline. His characters are so beyond embracing that age-old American ideal of social mobility. In André Debuse III's new novel, Such Kindness, all that his main character, Tom Lowe, is striving for is a temporary respite from chronic pain. Tom is a 50-something white guy, once a builder, once proud of the work of his hands, like the beautiful house he constructed for his family. Then came the fall off a roof that broke Tom's back and hip. The bank foreclosed on his property, his marriage fell apart, and he became addicted to opioids. Now, six years after he kicked that addiction, Tom lives alone in subsidized housing and cultivates resentments. He calls his ex-wife, who's happily remarried to a lawyer, an abundist, a word he made up, meaning one accustomed to abundance. If someone's raised in abundance, Tom thinks to himself, then that person is raised with partial vision. Probably true, 
but it's the widening of Tom's own vision that this odd and affirmative novel dramatizes. Tom hatches a plan to commit credit card convenience check fraud to steal the money to visit his estranged son who's turning 21. When that scheme predictably goes haywire, Tom is propelled on a journey modeled explicitly on the hero's wanderings in Herman Hesse's novel Siddhartha. Making his way towards his son, a hungry, stripped-down Tom must accept charity from strangers and divest himself of the bitter internal narratives that have kept him isolated on his couch for years. In such kindness, Debus pulls off the near impossible. He writes convincingly and, for the most part, unsentimentally about a man resurrecting himself from the dead. It's safe to say that Brandon Taylor's fictional MFA students would roll their eyes at this old-fashioned tale of the erosion of masculine independence and the epiphany that renews Tom's hopes. But despite their differences in tone and form, these two novels share a charged undercurrent of fear about how easy it is to slip out of one's foothold in America and how very hard it can be to find that foothold in the first place. Maureen Corrigan teaches literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Late American by Brandon Taylor and Such Kindness by Andre Debuse III. On tomorrow's show, we speak with Washington Post reporter Hannah Natanson about the culture wars raging in American schools. As parents and political activists debate how to teach kids about race, gender identity, and sexuality, dozens of states have passed laws placing restrictions on how certain subjects are taught and making it easier to remove books from school libraries. It often leaves teachers with uncomfortable choices. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.